Well, today we'll be in Psalm 103, verses 1 through 14, so we'll actually just read this whole section before we uh, work through it. It says in verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your disease, who redeems you, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. And when we open up the Bible, we're not opening up a book that is primarily a self-help book. Uh, It's not primarily a book about how to do life. It's not even primarily a book about how to be a great dad. But it is a book about God, which is written with the assumption that our whole life changes around who our God is. That we all become like the God that we worship. And that the more we see him for who he is, the more we're transformed to be in his image. And as that process of of sanctification, of becoming increasingly like him, works its way out in our lives, it certainly shapes fatherhood. And today as we talk about fatherhood, it's important that we realize that this is a message for all of us, not just for those who are fathers. And that's because the church is a community. And it's important that we all in love understand that the the texts and and the messages that are occasionally more directly applied to someone else uh, are still important for all of us. Because part of what it means that we are a unified body in Christ is that that we're not against one another, but we're for each other. We're not men versus women here, fathers versus mothers, all competing for attention. In Christ, we're glad when when women, women benefit from ministry or men benefit from ministry because as one part of the body is strengthened, the whole thing is strengthened. And the presence of more godly women, more godly men, more godly fathers in the church, it benefits everybody, men, women, and children. And even if you're not a dad, uh, you may be someday. You may be raising one. You may raise one someday. You may be a grandfather or grandmother to one. You may be discipling one. And we all benefit from knowing what a father is supposed to be. So, So in this psalm today, we're going to see God as father, all in the hopes that we would know him better and that we would know better what fathers are called to be in in this world, in the church community, how, how we're supposed to live as Christian fathers in the image of our father in heaven. And this is important because it flies in the face of two lies that we can believe about approaching God as our father. One of those lies is that we can never know God well because our earthly fathers, in some cases, were bad examples. And I know that it's it's safe to say that just under half of everybody here grew up in a house without a dad present. And uh, for those of us who did have dads present, many weren't dads that understood their roles or engaged well. And then all of us, even the ones who had the best of fathers, godly fathers, we had fathers who were sinners like us and not complete in the way that they lived out their role as fathers in our lives. And it's true that this fatherlessness does bring some serious baggage into our relationship with God. It's difficult to know in some ways what God the Father is like if we've never seen a good father. 
And I know in some cases we even had abusive dads. So to say that God is the father doesn't make us think good things about him. And so we can kind of limp along as a result where our view of God is is negatively affected by our dad. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus told us to address God as our father. He he is our father, but it's impossible to have a view of him that wasn't shaped by our dad. And, And because of their imperfections, we can struggle to see through the fog of what God the father is like. But we also have to be careful not to use that struggle as an excuse and not to make too much of that struggle. Because it's true that we have to acknowledge our weaknesses, acknowledge our blind spots that arise from the ways that that we were fathered, but it doesn't honor God to assume that he is powerless over the way we relate to him because of something that happened to us growing up. We can know God as father, and we can know him truly as father, even if we did have bad dads, and, and even all of us who had imperfect dads. God's given us the scriptures so that we can know what he's like, and, and we all have false beliefs to overcome. I mean, that's why it's so important to spend so much time in the scripture as opposed to just sort of dreaming up our own thoughts about what we think God is like, because we'll always gravitate toward things that we've seen on earth and we'll think, well, God must be like that. And in order not to make God what we want him to be or what we would choose for him to be, we have to spend a lot of time in his scripture. And in order to not make God to us just like our earthly fathers, we need to open the scripture to see what our father in heaven is like. He's given us the Bible so that we can say that even if I was failed by my earthly father, my father in heaven is different, and I can know that father. Our view of God can overcome even deficient fathering growing up. Another lie that we believe sometimes is that we could never be good fathers because in some cases our earthly fathers were bad examples. Like we'll say, I just never saw what a father was at home, and so how am I supposed to know what a good dad is? Well, the answer from Scripture is, is that we do have a good father. We do have a real father in heaven. He really is our father, and so we can know. And he's a God who turns things around. When we come to faith in Christ, he makes us a new creation. And and the fatherlessness of our generation definitely creates real problems, all of which can be overcome by God's spirit and the transforming nature of the gospel. That God can change family trees in a generation. And and it's true that because of weaknesses and because of all kinds of factors, we'll all be far from perfect. We'll all have a lot of sins to confess. We'll all fall short of being the dads we should be if we're dads. But we are confessing our sins to a God who forgives and restores. And when we confess our sins to God, we're confessing them to a God who, who forgives sin, but also a God who transforms us. When we bring our weaknesses to God, when we bring our blind spots to God, when we bring our sins to him, we are bringing those things to someone who can change them. Uh, When I bring my car to the mechanic, which seems to be happening weekly these days, when when I bring it in, I'm confessing, I can't fix this. I don't know what that light means. I don't know what that sound is. I open up the hood. I don't know what I'm looking at. Uh, There's a certain confession that goes with that, but there's also a certain confidence that I'm bringing this car to someone who can fix it. I'm bringing this to someone who does know what they're looking at when they open up the hood, who knows what that light means, who's heard this sound before, who's seen these things before, and who is an expert at fixing these things. And when we confess our sins to God, we're confessing them to a God who's not powerless. And all the darkness that we've experienced, as significant as it is, can't drive out the light. We should expect the light to drive out the darkness. And while it's true that our upbringing will affect our view of God, and it's true that being like my dad is my default setting in my fathering, 
It's even more true that as we learn to be worshipers of our perfect Father in heaven, the light of who God our Father is can push out darkness. We can have a healthy relationship with God as Father, even if we did have unhealthy relationships with earthly fathers. And we can have our whole definition of fatherhood changed, and we can be shaped into fathers that honor God by seeing what kind of father God in heaven is. And this is the process that's always at work within us. This is why we gather together for worship every week. This is why we teach the word every week. This is why we do our devotions, because in seeing him for who he is, we're transformed to be like him. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So there's coming a day when Jesus returns, and we're going to see him as he is, and that's going to completely transform us. Seeing him as he is will make us just like him. And in the meantime, well, while we can kind of see him a little bit foggily in some ways, that that we can't see everything perfectly, we can see him truly in the scriptures, and seeing him as he is today is the power that transforms us. We are transformed by seeing these truths about God, so it's important that we look at God and his attributes as father to be able to shape us into the fathers that we're called to be. I mean, Jesus always addressed God as father, You see him praying again and again and again, and he's calling out to Abba, Father, the exception being when he's on the cross. When he's on the cross, he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in all the other prayers of Jesus that I'm aware of, he's calling God his Father. So this is a way that he wants us to know him. He wants us to know him as Father, and it's an important dimension of our fathering to know who he is. So look how he's revealed himself. Psalm 103, um, verse 13 is really the heart of this psalm. It says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And this whole psalm is about that. The whole psalm is about what God our Father in heaven is like. And it says that the heart of his fatherhood is compassion. And this is a word that means a deep stirring of your spirit for someone. It's the kind of love that compels you to act on someone's behalf and to take responsibility for them. It's used often in the Bible of mothers and their nursing babies. This is Isaiah 49, verse 15. It says, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. So the kind of care and concern the father has for us is the kind of care and concern that a mother has for nursing babies. It's that diligent, constant concern. It's it's concern for someone that is hardwired into you and causes you to act. I remember when uh, we were first driving home from the hospital with our first daughter, Lydia. We, um, we went to the hospital, and on the way there, I'm driving pretty fast, n- not because it was all that urgent, but just because you can. Like, this is your chance. You're not going to get the ticket. And so, you know, flying on the way there, but then on the way home, it was just checking the car seat over and over again, making sure everything's safe. Felt like I should be driving with the flashers on, driving 15 miles under the speed limit, over on the shoulder, trying to get everybody to pass me. Man, Grandma, go, go. Like, it was just like this intense care and concern because now all of a sudden everything's changed because I have this baby in the car. And it created in me all kinds of new things. It created a new responsibility, went home, and for the first time was like, I should have life insurance and all these things that that I had to do that I didn't do before. It created this new kind of love. It created new kinds of anger. 
um, where, where there were things that threatened her that those things never made me angry before, but now is there a threat to this new love? It creates those new emotions. Everything in me got rewired around having this, this baby that I'm now responsible for. It's just built into the biology of a parent to care for a new baby to the point where you would do almost anything necessary for the good of your kid. And God says that's what his fatherhood is like toward us. Now, he doesn't change, so it's not like once we came along, um, you know, stuff in God changed. He's the same as he's always been. But at the very core of his being is compassion toward us. And you see this in, in the whole narrative of the Bible. The narrative of the Bible is that God is compassionate, so he redeems. Now, sometimes we frame it this way. Sometimes we say, you know, God uh, didn't really like us. He, he honestly couldn't stand us. So he sent Jesus, and Jesus came and paid a price. You know, he died on the cross to legally obligate God to love us. And then once Jesus died on the cross and kind of cleansed our sin, the, the deal was done, and God said, all right, Jesus paid for the sin, so I have to accept you. And now he just kind of tolerates us in heaven because of this new legal arrangement that's been set up. But the narrative of the Bible is not that God reluctantly saved us. It's not that he reluctantly sent Jesus to, to redeem. Scripture, the story of Scripture starts with the compassion of God. That yes, we, we had sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Yes, Scripture says we were by nature children of wrath. I mean, because of our sin, we did deserve hell. We were in a mess. We were the enemies of God. But Scripture says God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So he looked at sinful people who had rebelled against him, and he loved us. He loved us. There was compassion, and it moved him to act. And in response to that love, he sent his son, and Jesus came and died on the cross to pay the price for the sins of everyone who would believe in him. And once we believe in him, once we trust in him, the, the guilt for those sins is lifted, the price is paid, and, and God's loved us all along, but now he can justly accept us he can justly welcome us into his presence for all eternity. And that's not a reluctant thing where God says, okay, now I can tolerate you. God is celebrating the fact that though we were sinful and had rebelled and sinned and strayed in so many ways, Jesus paid the way so that we could be brought back to him. And he, he arranged the whole thing because he loved us. That love compelled him to act. That's what his compassion is, and that's what his, his fatherhood is like toward us. He's not a disinterested father. He's not a father who's annoyed by our presence. He's not a father who's fed up with us. He's not a father who's just sort of plopped himself on the couch and doesn't want us to disturb him at all. He's a father with active compassion that compels him to take responsibility for us. And any time God in Scripture is telling us what he's like as a father— that's an invitation to those of us who are fathers to be fathers like that. There's a place in the Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan the lion goes to the White Witch's castle and he has to bring some of the stone statues back to life so, that they, so he can have soldiers for his battle. And one of those stone statues is another lion. And so Aslan brings that lion back to life and at one point he says something to him like, uh, like this is what us lions are like. And that lion hears Aslan say that, and he starts strutting around, and he says, you hear what he said? Us lions. That means him and me. Us lions. Like, he gets this new sense of identity that, that Aslan's saying, lions, just like us. So I'm, I'm supposed to be something like, like Aslan. This new lion is raised from the dead. He's included in the mission, and Aslan is saying to him, us lions act this way. 
He gave that new lion his sense of identity, his sense of purpose. It was an invitation to be a a lion like Aslan is a lion. And in the same way, God is calling himself a father and saying to us, us fathers are like this. This is how us fathers live. This is how us fathers behave. This is an exciting invitation. At the heart of what it means that God is a father is that he has compassion where he acts and takes responsibility and he looks at us as fathers and says, this is what us fathers are like. Now, this is very different than what so many, even Christian manhood books, tell us that we're supposed to be. So many of the books on Christian manhood basically say that we are supposed to fulfill our dreams, that we were made for adventure, we were made for excitement, so we should go out and do the most exciting things we can because that's what Christian men do. But in Scripture, you see God making us for responsibility. God makes Adam, and immediately he puts him in the garden, and that's the place where he's responsible to his God, who's going to come and walk with him in the cool of the day. He's responsible to his wife, who he says is the bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. He's responsible to do his job, which is to dress and keep the garden, subdue the earth. He's responsible for his family, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's given all these responsibilities, and it's like God is saying to him, this is what us fathers do. He gives responsibility to those who are trying to live in his image. Real manhood is not a call to live all of our dreams. I mean, it's fine when adventure fits. It's fine when the great vacation fits or when the job can be exciting and fulfilling. Those are are great things and can be received with thanksgiving. But at the essence of biblical manhood and fatherhood is being moved to take responsibility for others, which requires a major change in us. That's probably why the psalmist starts this psalm by talking to himself, by talking to his soul. In verse 1, he's preaching to himself. It's like he's grabbing himself by the collar and he's saying, you have to believe this stuff and you have to act accordingly. Look at what he says to himself, just grabbing himself. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So he says to himself, start by worshiping. Bless the Lord. Praise the Lord. Don't forget who he is. Don't forget all that he does. He's preaching to himself. And this is an important discipline for all of us, whether we're dads or not. And we all have that that voice, that internal monologue that is always preaching some message to us. And as Christians, one of the primary ways we change is by getting a hold of that voice and replacing it with the message of the gospel. Preaching the gospel message to ourselves again and again. That that voice that always preaches can be preaching the good news of Christ to transform us. And we're more affected by the message that we're constantly preaching to ourselves than anything. I mean, sometimes we will preach to ourselves our excuses. All the reasons that I can't be as responsible as other guys. Here are the reasons that I could never love my wife well. Here are the reasons that I could never care for my kids well. Here are the reasons I could never provide for what my family needs. Here are the reasons I can't worship. Here are the reasons I can't find Christian friends. I can't settle down. I can't take responsibility. We can preach to ourselves how we're life's victims and life could never be more, and that preaching affects us. And our default message for ourselves is a selfish one. We preach to ourselves, my life is all about me. And my responsibilities, like my job, my my wife, my kids— those are interfering with what my life should be. The default message of our hearts is not to gladly take responsibility for others. The default message of our hearts is a selfish one. 
So the psalmist grabs his soul by the collar and he says, soul, you have a father in heaven who's not like that. Don't forget him. Don't forget his benefits. Remember what he is like because the default mode will be to be like your father, Adam. I mean, when we contrast Adam and Christ, you see one who takes no responsibility and one who takes all the responsibility. I mean, Adam in the garden goes out and sins and God comes walking with him, comes walking looking for him. And, and he says, Adam, where are you? And he's hiding. And when God asks Adam, what is this that you have done? Adam immediately points at Eve and says, that woman that you made me? Yeah, she's the one who made me do these things. So here's Adam who's guilty and he's casting blame. And now here we are, the church, the, the bride of Christ, and, and the real problems with the world were caused by humanity. God is not the author of sin. He's, he, he's not the one who made the messes. But then Jesus comes. And Jesus hangs on the cross, and in effect, he says, God, that woman that you gave me made me do this. Jesus takes full responsibility for something he didn't do. It wasn't his fault, but he still owns it. Jesus never sinned at all, but he still took the responsibility to redeem his bride. And so the psalmist says that's the message that should be shaping us more than anything. Don't forget his benefits, because as we behold our God, we become more like him. So look at his benefits. Look at what the father is like. Look look at what the one who looks at us and says, us fathers, lives like. Verse 3, it says, he forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. He's a father who's always working to restore relationship. He's a father in heaven who forgives all the wrongs that Christians do and makes sure that that relationship is, is permanent. He's the father in the prodigal son story who's looking for us to come home, who's prepared a celebration for when we do, who's always there with grace and mercy and joy, even for, for the children that have sinned and strayed. You need to know that and to see that to become like him. Because sometimes our kids will, will mess up and we get so mad because our pride is hurt. Man, they, they're not making me look good right now. They smudge my glory. Sometimes we can even go weeks on end with holding forgiveness and building resentment against the people that God's given us responsibility for. But fathers like our Father in heaven, forgive. And in all of our discipline, which should be present in our homes, we, in all of it, we provide opportunities for quick resolution, quick restoration of relationships, not endless heartache and brokenness. But sometimes we can become resentful and we can hold bitter grudges against our wives and our kids. And when we're doing that, we're not being like our Father in heaven who forgives iniquity. He's a reliably gracious Father who forgives. And when we know him, we can forgive like him. He's a God who's eager for prodigals to come home. Look how far he goes. Verse 4, he says, He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He takes responsibility for the pits that we're in. Good fathers are like that. They see the messes that their families are in, and they redeem. They work to fix those messes. They don't run away with, when their families fall into a pit. They come along and they own the pit. And at times, uh, it can look like our families are in the pit, where it can look like there are tensions, there are difficulties, there are burdens, and it may tempt us to cut and run. 
Things are, are so hard and, and home just seems loud and chaotic and we can want out. And even if we don't fully cut and run, we may retreat to video games or hobbies or distractions in the place of engaging with the people God's given us responsibility for. But look at the Father. He sees us in a pit and he comes and redeems us out of it. Jesus comes and, and becomes flesh and lives among us and he wears a crown of thorns so that we can be crowned with love and mercy, as verse 4 says. He sees us in the pit and pulls us out. He, he gives life. Father's redeemed from a pit, so, so don't run from the pit. Verse 5, it says, He satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He provides what we need to be whole. And this is, fathers take responsibility to provide, even when it's costly, even when it's hard. And one of the callings on, on the lives of fathers is that we do have to work. And, and we're doing this in the image of God. I mean, look at the work that Jesus went through to satisfy us with good, to forgive us, to heal us, to bring us back into right relationship with him. Jesus endured the cross so that we could be brought into that relationship. And what we're called to is, as men is to do hard things and to do sometimes unpleasant things for the good of those that we've taken responsibility for. We're called to avoid the temptation to just daydream about a better life and instead to take responsibility for the life that God really gave us. You know, sometimes we can, can daydream about the, the dream wife or the dream day or the dream job and how many men are just sort of lost in fantasy about somebody else or lost in internet pornography, uh, just dreaming about someone other than, than their wife thinking that I should have had something else rather than taking responsibility and delighting in the wife that God's given us. Or sometimes we get lost in the fantasy about what the dream day and the dream job should be, that, that we should be going in at nine and, and all day long we get nothing but recognition from the boss and we leave there thinking, man, I am so overpaid here and then we go home at five and when we get home at five, everybody's happy and full of energy and it's dinner and then we relax and it's Netflix till 10 and it's, it's just like this perfect day and this is exactly what it should be, but instead we got to go in at 7.30 and it seems like there's no recognition, and we don't feel like we're silly overpaid here. And then we go home, and we can't even leave till 6, and we get home, and everybody's tired. And there's so much work to do. Kids need help, and the car's leaking something else, and there's something that has to be done on the house, and bills have to be paid. We feel like we're putting in another shift, and sometimes we can convince ourselves, well, something has gone wrong because my life shouldn't have to be like this. But remember what us fathers do. God is a God who works on behalf of his, his children. We see in, in Jesus who comes, and on the cross, he wasn't doing his dream job. He was enduring the, the wrath of God for our good. Now, there was joy set before him. He was doing it for good reason, for good purpose. Like he, there was joy coming in the redemption of the people that he was dying for, but it wasn't a, a pleasant and easy experience. It, he was enduring and taking responsibility so that we could be redeemed out of the pit. That's what he's like, and we behold him and become like him. So God is a God who provides good. Verse 6, it says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. I mean, is it ever astounding like, that God has made himself known? He's just so far above us. 
He's so much more important than us, so much more of, of a big deal. Uh, compared to God, what do we matter at all? The Psalms even talk about that. Like, what is man that you are mindful of him? Like, what in the world? That God would pay attention to us, but he did. He came and lived among us. He spoke his words and gave us the scripture. He cared that we would know him. He was present and speaking and communicating. This is what our God is like. And he says, us fathers are present too. Us fathers teach too. I mean, it's great when mom is, is teaching kids about Jesus and that there's Christian input coming from her, but, but this comes from dad too. Mom shouldn't be the only one teaching them. Look at what God did. This father made his ways known to Moses, and we are present making the ways of God known to our kids. Verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Notice the balance of anger and and joy and grace in God. Now, he does occasionally get angry, but overall, he's merciful and gracious. Now, anyone who, who loves someone will get angry. You know, again, if something threatens your kids, you're going to get angry at that threat. And so there are things that, that do draw the wrath of God. The scripture doesn't deny that at all. But his default mode is mercy and grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God's baseline mood is merciful and gracious. But so often what we can do as fathers is we can make it so that our baseline mood is anger and brooding, and discontent. And every once in a while, you can catch us on a good day. Then we'll be smiling, then we'll be laughing, then we'll be having a good time, but then we're going to go back to what we normally are. Now, good dads do get angry. We get angry at the things that can, can wreck our kids. But good dads, if we're being like our Father in heaven, anger isn't the baseline mode. We should be slow to get there and quick to get out of there. And if home is just constant anger, it will affect our kids and it will affect their view of God. Us fathers are merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's what he's like and what he's called us to be like. Verse 11, he says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Look at how he's just lavish and generous. And we, when we think generous, we tend to only think money. But he's, he's generous in his presence and in his instruction and in his joy in his service. He takes our sins as far as the east is from the west. You see God pouring out his grace on us in all kinds of ways. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And we think, yeah, God is like this generous, loving God if I'm in good shape. Like if I've done enough good stuff, then I can go to God and I can expect him to be generous and gracious. But look at what verse 14 says. It says that he's compassionate because he knows our frame and he knows that we're dust. His compassion is actually triggered by our weakness. 
We think we've got to bring our strength to God to be received by God, but God is concerned in seeing our weakness. God engages with our weakness. God's compassionate when we're weak. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, isn't this good news after hearing the message of what a father's supposed to be? Because who looks at our father in heaven and says, yeah, I'm just like that. I mean, so often we, we know we should protect, but our anger and our emotions are the main things that our kids need protection from. We know we should provide, but we're the reason the kids aren't provided for. We know we should drive the warmth and the joy in the home, but we become the reason for the sorrow there. And so we look at it and we fall so far short and we think, how could I ever approach God? He knows our frame. He knows our weakness. He knows that we're dust. And he's a father who redeemed us from the pit. He's a father who loves to forgive us. He's a father who loves to transform us. That yes, we failed and we failed in all kinds of ways and our failures have even done some damage. But the good news is that he's a compassionate God. He was moved to action. So he sent his son to die and to rise again so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be in his presence. He delights to forgive even failed fathers like us. And all of this is a a big invitation. It's an invitation that if you're here and you say, I don't even know this father in heaven. I mean, I kind of get a sense that there's a God out there, and I know that there's a God who gives commands, I know there's a right and wrong, and I know that I've often been wrong. Well, that sense is absolutely right. We have been wrong. We have fallen short. But our temptation is to say, okay, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to do a lot of good things, and then maybe I'll be able to trigger the compassion of this God, and he'll allow me into his heaven if I do enough good stuff. But the Christian message is the message that God looked at us with love before we had ever turned to him, He sent his son to die so that we can have a relationship with him that we receive just by faith, not by the things we do. So if you're willing to admit that you've been wrong and willing willing to admit that you've sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that you deserve his judgment, deserve his wrath, and if you're willing to stop trying to fix it yourself, but you're willing to just turn to him, and believe that he died and was buried and rose again, if you're willing to receive him, if you're willing to trust in him, to make him the Lord, to turn from selfishness, to turn from what was driving you before, to turn from from being your own God, from being your own ultimate, to turn to make him ultimate, if you turn to believe in him and what he did by simple faith, he'll forgive all your iniquities. He'll make you new. He'll guarantee you that eternity in his presence which is his delight. It's really good news. John 1, 12 and 13 says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You can turn today and receive him by faith, believe in him, repent, and he will receive you and make you his child. And then as he starts to show you what it's like that he's your father, he'll be saying to you again and again, hey, us fathers are like this. Let's go and be like this. Let's pray. Well, Father, we all sense that we have fallen short. Those of us who are parents have sinned against our children. 
We've often exasperated them with selfish demands, with inconsistent discipline, with with a lack of loving concern and compassion for their lives. We've used our children to glorify ourselves, to make us look good before others. And often we've resented them if we feel they're not doing that. We confess that we've pressured them to fulfill our hopes and our dreams rather than to pursue your unique purpose for them. So, Father, forgive us. And, Father, I thank you that you're different. I thank you for your tender and patient care toward all of your children. Thank you that you are kind and merciful, slow to anger, and quick to forgive our rebellion. Thank you that you're a God who not only waits for the prodigal to return, but you're a God who pursues the prodigal into the far country. And you're also a God who comes out to meet the angry older brother where he is. Thank you that you're a God who disciplines us tenderly and faithfully. Thank you that you bring into our lives exactly the circumstances that we we need in order to know our dependence on you and to grow in patient endurance and faith. And Jesus, we thank you for being the perfect son that none of us will ever be. Thank you that you loved and honored your earthly parents, even though you were their creator. Thank you that you perfectly submitted to the will of your father in heaven, even though it meant suffering. Thank you that you fully took responsibility for sins that you did not commit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd help us to recognize and delight in the huge privilege of our adoption as sons and daughters of God. Teach us to submit willingly to the fatherly wisdom of God. Give us thankful hearts for the gift of our parents that you chose for us in your wisdom. Help us to be good parents to our own children and to become spiritual fathers and mothers in the Lord to those who are younger than us in the faith. Make us people who live in the image of our Father and take responsibility for the good of others. And then, Father, use it all for your glory and for the flourishing of our community. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and worship him together.